Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Mark Shanahan is a writer and reporter from the Boston Globe. He's also a prostate cancer survivor who developed the podcast Mr. 80% for the Globe, detailing his experience with prostate cancer. And before we dive in, I want you to know that this episode has very frank discussions about sex and anatomy. So if you haven't had the birds and bees chat with your kids, make sure they're out of earshot. Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death among American men. Look, if you're over 70 in America and you don't have prostate cancer, you're probably a woman. So why doesn't anyone want to talk about it? I think one of the uh, fears that patients have related to surgery are the fear of loss of sexual function and urinary incontinence. We've been conditioned as men. We've been conditioned as humans you laugh about our privates and not talk about it in public. It's not something that I was really thinking about. Um, it wasn't on my radar at all. And uh, if, uh, if it wasn't for this test that we're going to talk about, I don't, you know, I don't know if I would have had as easy a course of treatment. What could be more obvious than a test for cancer? Take the test, find it early, and have a better outcome. Easy peasy. Well, as you will see, what seems like an easy decision is actually pretty nuanced. Hi, my name is Mark Shanahan, and I'm going to tell you things about the prostate and prostate cancer that you might not want to know, but you need to know. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you, Mark, so much for being with us. Before we get into your experience personally, I think we should start off by giving our listeners just an introductory course on prostate cancer and some background. So can you start very basically and just explain what the prostate is and what it does. Sure. So as a caveat, I would say that most men, the vast majority of men, don't know the answer to the question, which is the thing that is so incredibly ironic. Um, Half the population has a prostate and don't know what it is, where it is, or what it does. So this disease, prostate cancer, It can kill you. It can render you impotent. It can land you in diapers. And yet most guys know absolutely nothing about the prostate. Like, where is it? Let me just say, JetBlue does not fly direct. It's in there. 
I was one of those people when I was diagnosed. So I raced home and began Googling frantically. And what I discovered is that the prostate is a gland about the size of a walnut. It is located sort of below your pelvic floor, near your bladder, and it creates basically semen, not sperm, but semen, which carries the sperm. So you would think that men would know something about the prostate. This is not your elbow. Right. I think you lost them, though, at under the pelvic floor. I mean, I don't know that many men know where that is. Women do because it's like how we have to push out a baby and, you know, it's what we try to keep tight and firm, but I don't know that men can locate their pelvic floor. Well, you can with some assistance. It is what I say in the podcast is the jet blue does not fly direct to your prostate. It is in there. It's hard to find, which makes the biopsy procedure to sort of determine whether you have cancer super unpleasant. Of course, it also makes the surgery to remove it incredibly complicated. And we'll talk some more about this, but the nerves that control the hydraulics of the penis that allow you to get an erection are super involved in the prostate. And if you remove the prostate, well, until 1982, every single guy who got his prostate removed, everyone, 100% of guys who got their prostate removed, And the first prostatectomy was performed in 1904. So that is a lot of guys walked out of the hospital totally impotent. And, you know, 1982 is not the Middle Ages. And legions of men, generations of men were being diagnosed with this extraordinarily common type of cancer that didn't require surgery. They got surgery and they were impotent afterwards. And so then you might say, how does that happen? And the way it happens is that nobody ever bothered to chart the nerves that control erections. And they just assumed that they ran through the prostate. And if we take the prostate out, then a natural consequence will be impotence. And in 1982, this guru doctor down at Johns Hopkins discovered that, in fact, they run around the prostate. They don't run through the prostate. And so he pioneered this surgical procedure that spares the nerves. So today, if you're a guy or if you're the spouse of a guy who is contemplating prostatectomy for prostate cancer, you want nerve sparing surgery, okay? You don't want just to remove the thing. It's different than like, it's definitely nerves. It's not blood vessels. So it's different than what we're seeing now with post-COVID syndrome where men are impotent following their experience or acute illness with COVID. Not all men, correct? Not all men, but it does seem to be a vascular issue where they're losing a percentage of their small blood vessels from the illness. So tell us how common is prostate cancer? Give us some numbers. It's the second leading cause of cancer death behind lung cancer for men. One in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime, many, many, many more will have it and not know it. Basically, 
the doctors like to say, the urologists like to say that you will either die with prostate cancer or you will die from prostate cancer. It's that ubiquitous. The good news is that it's slow growing and that much of it is indolent. It's non-threatening. And so what I guess one of the big takeaways for me and the thing that I like to tell people is there's a good chance you're going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. It's really super important that you understand what that means and that you not rush out and get a lot of treatment that you don't need. I was 48 years old, and so it was a little bit more complicated for me. The average age at diagnosis for prostate cancer is 66. So it's typically associated with older men. And the older you are, the slower it grows. The problem is I was 48 and my wife and I did have at that point two young children. They were 11 and seven and we were having sex again and it was totally great. And then it was like, boom, you have prostate cancer. And it's not like elbow cancer. And it's crazy that I didn't know anything about it. That's the other thing. Well, that is the crazy part. And one of the things you write about that really shocked me is that uh, nearly as many men die from prostate cancer as women die from breast cancer. Why do you think it is that we have marches and raise millions of dollars for breast cancer research, but there's no prostate parade or ribbon or or huge groundswell similar to breast so cancer? So what I would say is that you're right. We don't have rallies and marches. A lot of that has to do with how men either choose or choose not to talk about stuff like this. As I say in the podcast and in the magazine story, when Betty Ford revealed that she had been treated for breast cancer, that like totally changed the game. That this sort of weird stigma that was associated with breast cancer gradually, but pretty dramatically changed. And there isn't that stigma today. In the case of prostate cancer, most men simply don't want to talk about it. And it has to do with their notions of masculinity. What will people think of me? All of that sort of thing. I mean, yes, there are some reasonably well-known people who have spoken publicly, not in any great detail, but like Joe Torrey and Colin Powell and John Kerry, who have spoken about their experience with prostate cancer. I was diagnosed, uh, Greg, in, in 99, and, you know, one of the first calls I got was from Michael Milken to, to sort of shed a little clarity on what I was going through, and uh, I, I'm, I'm forever thankful, not only for the fact that he made the phone call, but for the fact that he's created this home run challenge to raise a great deal of awareness, great deal of money, a great deal of re research coming from that, and... And, you know, since I was diagnosed, the death rate has been reduced by 50%. Michael Milken, who's kind of a complicated guy because, you know, he was sort of famous for financial crimes of a sort. He was diagnosed when he came out of prison and he started the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And they have raised, you know, $820, $850 million. And... Over the course of the last 25 or 30 years, the advances in the research and treatment of prostate cancer have been unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. 
in large part due to Michael Milken's activism around this and the money he's been able to raise. But that doesn't mean that like ordinary guys like myself are going around talking about prostate cancer. It just doesn't happen. I want, if you can, I think this is a good place to turn to your personal experiences, at least as much as you care to share with my audience. Can you tell us about your diagnosis? How did you learn you had prostate cancer? Did you have any symptoms? Was it found in a routine checkup? When I was 45, I had gone to see my doctor and we had talked about family history, this and that, heart disease, you know, smoking. Oh yeah, my father had been treated for prostate cancer. I never really spoke to my father about his treatment. My father is 84 today and he's fine. So my doctor suggested that we check my PSA, which is a routine blood test. They test your blood for your prostate-specific antigen. It used to be, historically, they would give you a digital rectal exam. They would put on a rubber glove and they would make a little bit of chit-chat and then they would go exploring. And the problem is that was a really sort of imprecise way to diagnose prostate cancer. So in the early 90s, they developed this screening, this blood test, and a high PSA can be evidence of prostate cancer. When I was 45 years old, it was suggested to me that I should get my PSA checked. So I did. Now, it was high. For a guy my age at 45, it should have been 2.5. It was like 4.2. And my doctor said, you know what? There's false positives. There's false negatives. Once we start going down this road, we need to be super careful because there's a lot at stake and you don't want unnecessary treatment. And I totally appreciate his approach. In the early 90s, soon after the PSA test was created, men would go in and they would get their PSA screened, the number would be high, and they would be sent off for a biopsy. And invariably, when you do a biopsy on a guy, 15 out of 20 times, they're going to find cancer. The problem is a lot of that cancer doesn't need to be treated, but we were treating it because you tell a guy that he has cancer, you tell anybody that they have cancer, and the impulse is overwhelming to get it out. So I appreciate that my doctor, with the benefit of having seen 20 years of people having done great damage to patients who didn't need to be treated, he said, you know, let's just sit tight and let's check your PSA every three to six months. And we did that for about two years and it incrementally went up. And your prostate is, because of where it's located, riding a bicycle can cause your PSA to go up. Having sex can cause your PSA to go up. So there would be all kinds of things like in the two weeks before I would get my blood test that I wouldn't do because I wanted like an accurate read of my PSA. Ultimately, we decided that given the family history, which is totally a predictor, and the fact that my PSA was going in the wrong direction, we should do a biopsy. So we did a biopsy, which is super unpleasant. And my wife was 
well, my wife has been present for all of this, but she was present for that as well. And seven days later, the doctor called me with the grim results. And your reaction Well, my is... reaction is bleak. My reaction is, my God, you know, I'm 48 years old and I take reasonably good care of myself. I have these two little children who are super adorable. My wife and I are having sex and I've got this thing. I had fucking cancer and it was really scary. It was compounded by the fact that I didn't know anything. You know, I'm an entertainment writer for the Boston Globe. I'm a frivolous fellow. I like books and music and movies and such. I like to have fun, entertainment, that's my thing. But I'm not stupid. And I felt so stupid that my father had had this thing and that every guy who has a prostate, every person who has a prostate is at risk for this thing. And I don't know anything about it. Is it common for doctors to look at family history like that? I feel like your doctor was exceptional in the way he was able to find this at a time when you were relatively yeah, young. I think that's true. I think that the American Medical Association and related groups recommend that men have their PSA checked at 50. I was 45. So he was definitely kind of ahead of the curve and mindful of the fact that the hereditary issue is a big issue. The other thing I will say is that African-American men, it is just crazy, the incidence of prostate cancer among African-American men. And they also should be getting screened earlier rather than later, because there's some evidence that the prostate cancer is more aggressive in their case, because the rate of death among African-American men to prostate cancer is twice what it is for white men. And that's just nuts. I mean, that's probably the same as it is with everything. It's why so many people are fighting for healthcare justice, because we're seeing how disease and illnesses disproportionately impact black and brown communities in a devastating way. This is probably not dissimilar to that. I agree with you. And I feel like that the outreach as a result there needs to be a much better job of communicating that. And there's a guy in the podcast who I spoke to who's trying like hell to do his thing. You mentioned that this diagnosis happened right at a time when your kids were no longer so young. Believe me, I have a nine and a six-year-old. I get it that they required constant attention and that you suddenly had this renewed sex life with your wife, Michelle, which I love. And I can also relate to that. I think every parent can relate to a place where you are rediscovering each other after having children and not wanting to look at one another. So how did this diagnosis change that renewed sex life? It's a good question. It's not irrelevant that, in fact, I didn't have any symptoms. You know, I had no reason to know about this or to worry about this. Michelle and I were enjoying each other without any reason to be concerned about this sort of thing. I think that after the diagnosis, you know, I'm a kind of an anxious, borderline crazy person. And this became a consuming concern of mine. When I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I worried about two things, dying and never being able to have sex again. Not necessarily in that order. A little bit. I mean, I think that that's not an unfair correlation. And as a result, 
Michelle has been throughout this sort of incredibly indulgent, incredibly supportive. You know, we had certain rules during my treatment. And we also tried new and different things post-treatment that I'm happy to talk about as well. But yes, I mean, we went from like house on fire to, eh, eh. I mean, it was fine, except I just, you know, I, I was concerned. Also, it changes. So having established now what the prostate does, if you remove the prostate, there is no more ejaculation. You still, and I'm not sure you want to talk about this sort of thing, but it's super interesting. It's just a big thing that nobody talks about. And so if you say, for instance, as you and I were saying about the nerves that control the hydraulics and that allow you to get an erection, you say nerves, people feel like that's like sensation. The prostate has nothing to do with sensation. The sensation is always the same. Whether you can get an erection, that's the question. But then when you have an orgasm, it's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, the sensation is, I actually think the sensation is better. Mm, but nothing comes out. Correct. And nobody tells you that. And it's like, you think, oh my God, what's happening? Because, you know, since you were like 14 years old, this was like every day, man, this is like a thing. So I guess, you know, what I would say is that if you were to sort of graph the effect of this, I mean, the story begins with Michelle and I totally reconnecting. And then we try to kind of hold on to that. It's like in an open boat on the ocean. And then you get to the other side. And is it exactly the same? No, it is not exactly the same. Anyway, there's no reason that it can't actually be in some ways. And Michelle's a big proponent for like, different is good. And so that's been so enlightened to think that way and to be encouraged to think that way. I went to this sort of therapist at Dana-Farber because, you know, you're all mixed up. You come out of the treatment and you're totally, you have expectations for yourself. You think your partner has expectations for you. You don't know. You just don't know. And it was super helpful to talk to this woman. And Michelle was very encouraging to sort of explore that kind of the difference, correct. And also don't get so hung up on 10 up, 10 down and the rest of it. Right. Well, you mentioned treatment. Can you just walk us through your course of treatment? You started with surgery, right? Tell us about that. So typically there are basically three ways that you can approach a diagnosis of prostate cancer. One is to do nothing. It's called active surveillance and understanding that to embark on a course of treatment could have really, really severe, lasting, permanent side effects. Be sure that what you are doing is the thing that you should be doing. And, you know, if you're 75 years old and you have this sort of borderline diagnosis and you're getting surgery, I say you're crazy. Well, is it fed by hormones? Indeed. Is Indeed. it one of those... Indeed. So that's why at 75, when there's less hormones, it's probably going to grow slower. Yes. So the other is surgery, which is, you know, it's come a long way, but it's still a two and a half hour, three hour operation. You can have it done robotically or not. I had it done robotically. And the final is radiation. And radiation is a couple of means a couple of, there's a couple of different, one is to implant these seeds in your prostate that are basically radioactive seeds and they burn and burn and burn. You know, it doesn't hurt, but they burn away the cancer. And they're like little sterno cans and they last for 15 years. The idea is that they kill all the cancer or at least they kill enough of it so that whatever's left over, it won't kill you. 
And the other kind of radiation is external beam where you're lying on a thing and they're zapping you. So at Mass General Hospital, when after I was diagnosed, I went with Michelle and we had a meeting and they do this really great thing, really great service for newly diagnosed prostate cancer patients where they sit you down with an oncologist, a radiation oncologist and a surgeon. And they basically present to you, it's like a job interview where the three candidates there, you're supposed to choose one of them. They present you with the advantages and disadvantages of each of the three approaches. And before we started, there was this very lovely nurse who said, you know, before we start, I just want to sort of get a baseline information. How would you rate Mr. Shanahan, your sexual fund today relative to when you were 21? And we're like this really like tiny little room with these three impressive doctors and this very lovely woman nurse and my wife sitting next to me. And I said, you know, I don't know, maybe 90%, 93%. And nobody said anything. And I looked at Michelle and she was looking at the floor and she said, mm, no, 80, maybe 80%. So I thought that was so great. And it was like sort of the first time in this process where I was encouraged to like get real. Right. Let's get down to it so that we could actually help you and keep Correct. you healthy. So after much deliberation, it was recommended that considering my age and the fact that radiation can kill you even as it cures you. And the radiation that you have today will cause cancer 20 years from now. It's not like they zap you and then you develop a malignancy now. You develop the malignancy down the road. And at 48, it just seemed like, you know, you're in good shape. You're going to get an even better shape before this procedure. You're young. You can withstand it. We think that it's contained. We have wonderful surgeons here. You can interview, audition whoever you want to and talk to them and choose somebody. Anyway, I had surgery. And I had it done robotically because it's less traumatic. There's less blood loss. The recovery time is shorter. And the surgeon that Michelle and I talked to, we, we talked to four and we chose this fellow. We liked him. He was a protege of this guy down at Hopkins who had developed the uh, nerve sparing. And he was a nerd. He was just like such a nerd. And we just felt like this guy is going to be perfect. And he was, he was great. Unfortunately, he came out of the surgery and he talked to Michelle and he said, you know, it went really well. I will say that Mark's prostate was a little boggy and that's the word that he used. And the- What does that mean? Well, it means sort of indistinct. It means sort of mushy and- as a result, there weren't these sort of well-delineated margins for him to work with. And he said, you know, I'm going to get the pathology report back in six or seven days. I'll call you. And I was home in bed with a catheter. And Michelle and I were watching The West Wing. We were sort of re-watching because, you know, Aaron Sorkin, the dialogue, it, you know, it, it keeps... Yep, yep. Correct. Quick pace. Keeps you, 
Well, it's also like optimistic, it's hopeful, this music swells. And anyway, it just seemed like a thing that would. uh, And so we were binging that and there was a call, a restricted number on my cell phone. And this was the second time, you know, the time that I got the diagnosis from my primary care, that was also a restricted number. Anyway, that is like, you do want to get a call on a restricted number. And he said, listen, we didn't get everything. There is evidence that the thing has eclipsed the margin of the prostate and we're going to need to do some more work and call my person next week. We'll set up an appointment and I'll tell you what we're going to do. And it was crushing because, you know, of course, at this point, I still didn't know if I had lost function, if I didn't know. And there's a long road. So is there no way to see the prostate until you're sort of in there? Like there's no ultrasound? So, yeah, we did an MRI in addition to the biopsy. We did an MRI. And our best guess was that based on the imaging that we had done was that this thing was not a big mess. And we were going to be able to go in and get it and that we would be one and done. It didn't look boggy? No, it didn't. And there are guys who, I mean, you can't believe the response to the podcast and the people who have sent me their own stories. There are guys whose PSAs are, you know, 90, 100, 150. They go in for a a biopsy and it's just, it's everywhere. Well, that wasn't what we were dealing with. We were dealing with a very sort of discreet, you know, when they do the biopsy, they take 12 pieces, they snip 12 pieces of your prostate. And we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the biopsy, but oh boy, it was just really disappointing. It was really discouraging, disappointing. And the crazy thing is it only got worse because as you just said, this is a hormone dependent disease. Of all the things I didn't know before my diagnosis, this fact, that prostate cancer eats testosterone like Pac-Man gobbles dots in a maze, surprised me the most. How could the sex hormone that gives guys biceps, body hair, and if they're lucky, a voice like Lou Rawls, also be the food that fuels this potentially fatal disease? That is the food that allows prostate cancer to grow. So if you remove testosterone, eliminate testosterone from your body, you can pause the growth. And in some cases, the cancer cells wither, they weaken. In some cases, they die. And so that's what we did. I took this injection of Lupron in my butt and I had it for six or eight months And basically, it eliminates testosterone from your body, which has all kinds of consequences. I mean, I turned into like a little old- A weepy- Yes. Oh, weepy. A weepy mess. Yeah. It was terrible. And a mean, sort of easily irritable eunuch. Also, you have no, absolutely zero libido. In some European countries, and in fact, in this country, this is what they give to some of the hardest core sex offenders to part of me was like, you know, cool, this is going to be cool because there's no way this is going to work. I mean, what is the chance that I'm going to like suddenly find my wife or anybody else like completely unappealing? (laughs) Well, it turns out chances are pretty good. I mean, it's crazy when you think about how hormones have so much to do with how we function. 
not just sexually, but also emotionally and physically. This is no mystery. This is not some kind of like, gee whiz, wow thing for women. I mean, this happened to me and I was like, oh my God. I, uh, and Michelle was like, you know, welcome. Yeah. Welcome to menopause. Welcome to all of our hormones going away. Correct. I mean, I think that, you know, what my oncologist says is that the difference is only that women in most cases, they kind of transition, that it's a somewhat more gradual than guy goes into the office, drops his pants, takes a shot in his backside. I was warned my balls might shrink to the size of chickpeas. I could lose muscle mass and my memory. I might gain belly fat and grow boobs. My joints could start to ache. My libido would almost certainly vanish. And so might my body hair. I've never been all that wooly, but still, I didn't relish the prospect of looking like a Teletubby. You know, when they tell you about this, it's like basically they read off this list of things that could happen. It's like your balls will shrink to the size of chickpeas. You might grow boobs. You'll be sweaty. And you think, okay, 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 okay. And then when all of those things happen, it's completely nuts. The other thing that I think is so interesting is women are so much more aware of any sort of invasive feeling because of sex being sort of internal and us having babies, which is an incredibly invasive traumatizing thing, but also the way we get examined, right? I mean, we sit on a table and have fingers put. I mean, it's just a disaster. So I think that we're sort of conditioned to that. So it must have been such a bizarre thing to have to release that part of your body into the hands of a doctor or into yeah, the unknown. I think that's true. I mean, obviously, yes. Michelle had had, at this point, two children, regular OBGYN exams. She had some endometriosis at one point. I mean, she didn't minimize the experience that I was going through at all. At the same time, she was in a great position to say, you know, hey, this is doable. You can do this thing. And that was super helpful to have somebody, a partner who could kind of talk me down. Michelle sounds amazing. And I feel like she should be my new bestie. So you get this shot. Is it a shot that you have to get more than once? You get it once and then you get it another three months later. And so where are we right now in your recovery, in your process? Oh, I'm fine. Right now, where are we? So just to finish what happened. So they give you the shots of Lupron, which makes your testosterone plummet. When it gets to zero, that means that the cancer cells are then at their weakest because they have nothing to eat. There's no way to grow. And that's when they radiate. That's when they give you the radiation and they hammer away every day for five weeks to get radiation. And basically they just start trying to kill whatever rogue cancer cells remain. And then you gradually come off of Lupron, your testosterone back up. And that's the critical moment where they want to see once you have the food for the cancer, does the cancer return? 
And we are now six years out and I have a negligible PSA. I don't have zero. I'm totally like fixated on, I want zero, I want zero. Well, I don't have zero. I don't have zero, but I have basically zero. And so I go in for blood tests every six months and the week or 10 days before that appointment is very, very upsetting and crazy making because, you know, you just think that this could be the time that my PSA will spike. And prostate cancer is a very insidious thing. And it does come back if it's not all captured. And then there's no more radiation that you can do. And there's no more surgery that you can do. And at that point, then it becomes basically playing defense and it could involve more hormone therapy. My oncologist likes to say that every three years we make like a radical advance in treatment. And so the longer we go in a good situation as I am now, the better off I'll be. So in answer to your question, as we sit here now, I have a perfectly normal, maybe something slightly higher than normal testosterone, and I have a negligible PSA, uh, and actual function is Mr. 80%. Right back to where you started. Well, that's good because I think so much about when we talk about prostate cancer is that it's tied directly into sex. And we largely define masculinity through sex. So I'm curious to know how you defined being a man before your diagnosis. Were you a stereotypical macho dude? You don't seem like you would have been that guy. No, I mean, I don't know what exactly you, I mean, I do know exactly what you mean, but no. But you know what? We talk about uh, sort of, uh, you know, we talk about white supremacist culture and about not understanding our entitlement. And I think that the same thing can be said of men and masculinity that I can tell you that, you know, I like, I have a shoe fetish. I enjoy shopping for shoes online. So maybe I'm not that guy, but on some level, I think I am that guy. I am like the guy with the pickup truck. But how has the experience changed that? I think that by virtue of talking about this thing, I think that the fact that I went through this thing and that I'm not some sort of evangelist for, you know, any particular kind of treatment or any particular approach to testing or whatever... But I am very keen on this idea of the need for men to be able to talk about stuff that is really totally fucking normal. For instance, there are all of these prostate cancer support groups. And when I was diagnosed, I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to go sit around with a bunch of guys who are 65 and 70 years old lamenting their once incredible erections. I mean, that's just like, I'm not into that. But as I was sort of reporting this podcast and thinking about my own experience, I did go. And it was incredible. It was incredible to go and listen to these guys, you know, these sort of contractors and real estate agents and just like regular guys, like totally regular guys who they weren't happy to be there. But they were so grateful. There was some place where they could come, some sort of safe place where they could come and talk about this stuff. You know, I think that what you're doing is so incredibly special and important. Anytime we try to erase some sort of stigma that surrounds something, things only get easier, I think. And what do you wish you'd known before this whole story started for you? 
Well, a lot, I guess. I mean, a lot. Well, one thing is I wish that when my father was going through this at the age of 68 or 70 and driving to Boston and having these meetings with my mom and the doctors and the various treatment options were being presented to him. I mean, I was oblivious. I was busy with my life. I would say, how are you doing? But he would never offer anything. And that's sort of a characteristic of prostate cancer. I know now is that nobody's going to tell you anything. I wish that I had been smarter and more engaged about what my father was going through for his benefit, but also for my benefit. This whole thing wouldn't have come like some tsunami of terrible, bad, just one thing after another. I would have actually been a little bit more prepared. And that's the other thing is like, I feel like you can listen to this podcast and, you know, we tried to make it not clinical and kind of entertaining and somewhat humorous because this thing is going to happen. The likelihood is good that you will need to know some of this stuff. And even if you are one of the lucky ones who doesn't need to know this, why not? Why not know this? Right, exactly. Because chances are, even if you're someone that isn't impacted, you know someone that is going to be. And why not be that person for them that they could talk to where you're educated and enlightened about it? I think my last question is what gives you hope? Well, the results of the election aren't bad. I mean, come on, you got to be honest about that. Well, the response to this thing has been really gratifying. And I've gotten a lot of emails from men, but I've gotten a lot of emails also from wives and partners who are clearly the ones at the meetings with the doctors who are asking all of the questions. You can just tell that they're the ones who are asking about sexual function. They're the ones who are asking about continence. And I'm glad that, I'm glad for many reasons, but that I didn't live in the 1950s because the advances that we have made medically are incredible. It used to be the treatment was barbaric and the results were truly horrifying. And that was like the standard. And so I'm also grateful, I guess, that I'm a white man. If you have lupus in this country, if you have a disease that affects young black women, forget about it. Congress is raising money for research and treatment of diseases that affect people who are in a position to lobby and influence politicians. They're not doing that for people who are without a voice and powerless. That does not give me hope. Well, it just makes what you do so much more important because you have to be an advocate and an ally for everyone, right? Well, thank you, Mark. Tell everyone where they can find your podcast. Well, Mr. 80% is the podcast and it's on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts, where you get Alyssa Milano's Sorry Not Sorry. And just please listen. We think it's pretty good. Awesome. Well, thank you for being so open and sharing your story. I have no doubt that you're going to make such a great impact and what a gift that you're giving to the community. So thank you so much. One of the hardest things for me was to figure out how do I help him. I'd come home going, oh, honey, I found this study. He'd be like, yeah, I already found it. Yeah, I already read it. Oh, yeah, I, I saw that. And I was sort of left going, well, how do I help? What am I going to do? And at one point, I remember distinctly turning to him and say, how do I help you through this? Like, what can I do? And he looked at me and he said, can you figure out the food thing? Because I, I don't even know what to do. That let me be his partner again. 
You know, our whole marriage has been a partnership. What does it take to be a man? This fall, Vanity Fair posted a cover of Harry Styles wearing makeup and a gown, and the right lost its shit. Candace Owens practically called it Marxism, a word she clearly cannot define. Ben Shapiro, America's most obvious virgin, tried to lecture the world on Twitter about masculinity and femininity, and you could almost hear his earnest little chauvinist voice cracking on every word. They confused masculinity, of course, with toxic masculinity, something rampant in our culture. When we define what it means to be a man by the size of their genitals or how much of an asshole or a conformist they are, we miss out on the fullness of masculinity. We reduce men to a caricature, a knuckle-dragging beast incapable of confronting emotion or handling the most mundane of domestic tasks. This hurts men. This hurts women. It hurts all of us. And it especially hurts our kids. Boys who don't conform to that narrow view of being a man face years of torment. Girls who feel more comfortable behaving in the way that is stereotypically male are not given the space to express their identities. These kids grow up to perpetuate the harmful attitudes and stereotypes of their families and play out this cyclical, self-fulfilling prophecy. The clothes do not make the man. The size of the penis does not make the man, nor does its functionality. And being a bully? Well, that's not masculine. It's childish. So it's time for us to ditch the outdated tropes of masculinity. It's time to give all of us the freedom from the small box of male stereotypes. It shouldn't take someone getting prostate cancer to be forced to examine what it means to be a man and come to a better place because of it. Man up, America. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.